0: As an actor, I have had the luxury of being on a Meryl Streep set and working with Wesley Snipes and so forth. But for the most part, unfortunately, when I'm making my own movies, it's really out of pocket, which is tough.
1: This is The Living Up podcast where everyone is interesting. If you ask the right questions, of course, make sure you share, you write review, and if you subscribe, you get more episodes. You get to talk to me and Mike here. We had a, a total rant about names and how they change, and wonderful things that happen with that. So make sure you guys subscribe. You get more episodes, and of course, check out the merch. I got the hoodies, I got the t-shirts. All that's in the description. This is not your first rodeo. You all know what time it is. Whenever I have somebody on for the first time, they get an elaborate intro. I'm sure Mike will correct any of these facts if they are wrong. Once I finished.
0: <laughs> Maybe all I right, won't. Hailing if, they're, from. if they're flattering, I won't correct them.
1: <laughs> okay. You heard it here first. Because yeah, go this ahead. good stuff, will keep it in. <laughs> hailing from. Now, I had to go and dig for this one. Arlington, Virginia, he received some education, I don't know how much, from a combination of UNC Greensboro, University of Rhode Island, and Rhode Island College, two different places. Our guest describes himself as an actor, etc. And that's quite accurate because he literally does everything in film. He's earned 53 awards and counting in acting, photography, film, directing, production, you name it, he's done it. He shared the screen with the likes of, listen to this, Wesley Snipes, The First Blade, okay, Sybil Shepard, Meryl Streep, that's big time, breakfast sandwich enthusiast, wrestling historian, and prominent film festival presence. I present. The Mike Messier, also known as Sir Mikey. Say hello to the people. Hey people, it's
0: Mike Messier. Uh that's a great introduction. I was born in Arlington, Virginia. I was uh more or less raised in Burke, Virginia, which is just you know twenty minutes away. Arlington is where the uh, National Cemetery is and also where uh Jim Morrison from the Doors was. Uh so Arlington has its own kind of interesting history. Yeah. Uh Jim Morrison's birthday. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Jim Morrison's birthday is December 8th. Mine is December 5th, Uh, December 7th into December 8th is when John Lennon was shot and killed. Um, But uh, for me, everything you said is pretty accurate. I think I just won the 54th award um, from a festival overseas uh, for my Seduction of Distance uh, piece from a festival called uh, Make Art Not Fear. They gave me the Best Fearless Actor award. Which is nice because, you know, until a couple of years ago, Tony, um, I really wasn't concentrating on my own acting for a while, you know, which is kind of interesting. I just wasn't. And so I kind of came out strong in the the summer of 2021. I basically filmed myself doing a monologue uh, derived from my own novel, screenplay, stage play, A Distance from Avalon. I basically just took over the lead male character or one of the lead male characters for myself after... Moving to Florida from Rhode Island, so there's a lot to say, and, uh, and I'll I'll turn it over to you again.
1: Man, that's you're full of great information, and I just okay, you know what? We'll just jump into our first number because when I start to research and I started seeing all of the stuff that you were doing, I'm like, we have to make this happen. So,
0: glad to be first number
1: here is 199 credits. Because I looked on your website and I added them up, I think I'm sure that number is in the right area, uh but that's how many credits you have to your name according to your website. so how did you get into film was it an experience as a child? was it somebody that you watched? Was it somebody that says, "Hey, come try this floor's yours
0: interestingly enough tony and that's great research um i uh I started with editing, which is a skill that I really don't have very much now. I can edit in my mind and I have a great partner and friend Tim Labonte uh up in Rhode Island who helps me edit or he does most of the edit but I kind of co-pilot as a director usually, but when I was in um high school, uh this is back in the VCR days, I discovered um that if you had two VCRs you could for the most part re- record a tape, you know, you could play one VHS tape and then Record the movie at home unless they had some type of block on it but a lot of things didn't and then i discovered if you grind on that pause button on your recording vcr you could actually like record a sequence push the pause button and either advance the same tape or remove the tape and play a different one and you could basically start editing uh with a vcr to vcr system just like i said grinding the pause button not the best thing for your vcrs but you could do it and uh, the first thing I did with that is I made a music video uh, for the Road Warriors, the Legion of Doom, Hawk and Animal, the wrestling tag team at the time. <laughs> so uh, I made this this pretty hot music video using the actual Iron Man song by Black Sabbath because I also discovered with uh, the audio output from a boombox with the old RCA you know red, white, yellow uh, wires yeah, you know, yeah your audio <laughs> from the from the boombox into the vcr and you'd actually have to make like a third generation because you'd have your compilation uh tape which is like all the footage compila- compiled so that's one generation and then you gotta put another tape together where you put the music from the boombox in with your finished sequence so you're 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 deteriorating your quality of image with this analog style of vcr but it it was just cool to do it you know and then what I learned was that I was really ahead of my time, you know, for, for, for people I was growing up with, because nobody had computers or anything to do this stuff. And I would start using my homemade videos as my school projects, and I would, I would save a lot of time because people were doing like, we had this thing called Civ Students in Volunteering, where you're supposed to like sign up for like a six week program <laughs> to, to to help people. And rather than do that, I, I banged out a, a video in about two or three days. You know, <laughs> so I, I started learning like the the this wouldn't fly today because anybody could edit now with a computer so much better. But at the time, because nobody else in my class, at least that I knew was doing anything like this, I was ahead of the curve and I was able to make a couple of videos. And and I did one for uh, Thunderstruck by ACDC, you know, and I, it was it was a lot of fun. So I, I still got the. I don't know if uh, we're doing video here, but I still got my Road Warriors yeah. uh, <laughs> action figures. That's Hawk, and uh, so that's that's pretty much how I started. Then advance several years to when I'm actually in college in uh, Rhode Island College. My friend George Lamastro. I'm still friends with him to this day, and his wife Tanya. Great name. Yeah, George is a great guy. Yeah, great name too. And George, um, he asked. We were taking a class together. And George asked me, Hey Mike, do you have any ideas for a low budget movie? Because I have access to this video equipment through our college, but my ideas for movies are big budget sci-fi movies. I need something that we can do on a low budget. And oddly enough, I had been thinking about a movie. I had been thinking about, uh, basically a guy stalks girl, they go out on a date and then she kind of turns the table on them type of kind of like a basic instinct, but a little grittier. And, uh, there was this lady in the uh, Providence, Rhode Island, named Jennifer Hayes, who was a, a very good female singer. She had like, a band called Per Manifesto and, you know, very much like a Courtney Love, but not that type, uh, not that screwed up type of person. So I thought, you know, Jennifer would be really good as this female lead and I could play the lead guy and George can direct. And and so we, we went off and made a movie and uh, we were so broke, man. We We really had no money but we had great equipment through the college but we'd have to sign up for the equipment sometimes we would we would get there and the, the equipment wouldn't be there um we had to get a lot of volunteer actors and and just people that weren't even actors were in our movie but at the end of the day well actually about at the end of a year and a half we had an 80 minute movie which at the time seemed like forever mm. to make a 80 minute movie but now as a man i'd love to make a 80 minute movie in in eight, in a year and a half because it's when you're not really working with big budgets and uh, as a filmmaker, I'm typically not as an actor. I have had the luxury of being on a Meryl Streep set and working with Wesley Snipes and so forth. But for the most part, unfortunately when I'm making my own movies, it's really out of pocket, which is tough.
1: Where did that, I mean, you didn't make your own brain, but. It's just interesting to hear, like, okay, I already have a movie in my head. Your buddy's like, you know, I, I want to make a movie. And you're like, bro, I, already, I have it. I already have the idea. So whenever you have an idea for a movie and you feel like, okay, I may have something, what does that process look like? To, I don't, Do you get it down on paper? Do you try to, like, storyboard it? I think I'm maybe going off the deep end no, here, but questions. what does that process look like from start to finish?
0: With with the movie I just described, which was titled "Man in You: A Providence Love Story," we actually did not write a script. We wrote because we didn't have final draft screenwriting program. Didn't even know what that was at the time. Um, but we basically wrote outlines for the scenes as we went. As I once I got through that experience, the next thing I did was I wrote a stage play, and I actually wrote it in the computer lab in my college. I didn't even have my own computer. So I'd go to the computer l- lab and write one scene at a time. And I still have yep. uh, flashbacks or nightmares to when I wrote this big, long scene and the computer ate it up. Like it, it didn't get uh. saved. And I, it, all the things that I've written in in the last however many years, and I still think about that one scene that got ate up, you know, from, and it probably wasn't, I mean, I thought it was good at the time, but maybe it wasn't. But anyway, I wrote this stage play titled uh, Victorious, the Battle for Sanity on, you know, Microsoft Word. It it had somewhat of formatting, but just really my own formatting. And I went to uh, a stage play at the University of Rhode Island and this uh, young director guy, Chris Reardon, directed this play. I approached him and uh, I said, hey, I wrote a script and uh, would you consider directing it? And so he was a cool Mm -hmm. guy and he took the script and we met up for pizza maybe a week or so later, and he, he decided for his first post-college activity to basically direct and co-produce my play. And uh, so this is when I started going from, okay, I'm a writer, and now I'm watching these basically like theater students. The three actors had just graduated from URI. It was mostly a University of Rhode Island like production of recent graduates doing something off campus, and I got the venue. I got the location, which was a rock and roll club. The Rock and Roll Club, which was a really a nice venue called The Call in Providence, they had never hosted a stage play before, but we did it for four nights. You know, we had four nights of the thing. I videotaped the last night, which is uh, it's up on my uh, subscribe to Mike Messi YouTube channel, Victorious, The Battle for Sanity. And I kind of learned um, I really like writing and I like seeing this thing happen, but there's a missing thing. I'm not directing. And it it was nothing against Chris. I thought Chris did a great job. And I couldn't – I wasn't ready to direct and work with actors and be patient and all that. But observing what Chris did and just a few creative differences I might have had with his choices, I said, yeah, I'd like to start directing. So I started doing that. And um, around the same time, Tony, you know, the acting started when – when we did Man and You, the first movie with my friend, George, I can see when the movie was finished, like, OK, this scene I was pretty good in this scene. I was not very good in at all. What's the difference? And the difference was, as the movie got further along, my acting was literally improving. Now, we didn't film the movie chronologically. So there I can tell, like, OK, this this scene yeah. we filmed, you know, week one and I kind of suck. But this scene in, in month nine or nine month 10, I'm, I'm, I'm OK or I'm pretty good. And I started thinking I'd like to take some acting classes like I want to try acting. So I, I um, found this uh, place called Perishable Theater in Providence. And there was a gentleman that I'm still in touch with, Fred Sullivan, and he was teaching an intro to actors class. And, and Fred was a great teacher. But what I learned was like Fred was so professional and so competitive. It was almost like a filter. Like if you weren't really ready to act, if you weren't ready to learn your lines and get into it and have a tough skin with his critiques, people were dropping like flies from the class. They just would stop showing stop showing up
1: like, Oh, this sucks. I'm out of here.
0: Right. And I'm thinking, okay, this is pretty intense for an intro class, but I never quit. I kept coming. And I think that's fine because probably those people that did quit probably would have quit eventually. Or who knows? Maybe they got other teachers. But then I took another lady named Kate Lester. She was an acting coach there at the same school. She, she was more of a—I don't want to say touchy feely—but more of a nurturing presence. And uh, mm. I, I started taking one-day workshops. You know, this this lady named Annie Mulhall, who would be the lady to get me the Wesley Snipes, Sybil Shepherd, Mario Van Peebles gig in Hard Luck. She started teaching one-day seminars and. You know business of acting classes and at the time Tony, all this stuff was new to me like headshots resumes um where to go for auditions this is really before social media, so a lot of information was on the internet, but you kind of had to you kind of needed somebody to help you find it type of thing
1: right it was scattered.
0: And, right so Google you know like Google search engines weren't quite as strong as they are now, so you you really needed some advice. You couldn't just figure it out on your own. And then I, I started doing something else, which is I started reading books. You know, I started reading, um, you know, books like Larry Moss, The Intent to Live, and uh, Audition by Michael Shurtloff, and The Power of the Actor by Ivana Chubbik. Those are like the three big ones that I always say to my acting students because I do that now myself. I teach acting occasionally. And and really, buddy, the the more information I got – uh, the better I felt about it, the more confident you used the word confidence before the big mm-hmm. break. It, it, I mean, look, I'm not, I don't consider myself hugely successful by any means, but as far as like getting to the screen actors guild was through that Wesley Snipes movie. And that was that lady, Annie Mulhall. Um, I was, I had just started a job at MetLife, like selling insurance or customer service. <laughs> and I, I was not good at it. I was still in the training class, and I got a call yeah. from Annie Mulhall, you know, a voice message saying, "Hey, I got this audition for you. It's a Wesley Snipes movie, blah blah blah." And uh, can you can, And I went over there,
1: oh, go ahead. I'm on here.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I go to the audition, I go to the audition, and uh they literally started filming the movie and didn't have this part cast yet. So now I'm like, I'm probably not going to get it if they've already started filming the movie. And then they still kept auditioning me. And eventually she called me on like a Friday night to tell me that I got the role. So uh, the Wait. movie had Wesley Snipes as the lead, uh, Sybil Shepherd, who was on a show called Moodlining, and she, she dated Elvis. And she, you know, she had her own sitcom called Sybil in the 90s. She was in Taxi Driver with De Niro. Um, she played my mom in this movie. And uh, and uh, Louise Guzman was in it. And Mario Van Peebles, who was really a a great guy, he directed it and I had a great time. So that got me a little bit of notice in that New England area, because the reality was not a lot of like local actors were getting any type of speaking role. And here I am getting a principal role in this thing. So that was a big break.
1: Man, I mean, you you did so much there, like you talked about. All right. You know, I'm trying to figure it out. And then you kind of take a job. That's always the cool part. Like, what's the job that you're like? I can't wait to get out of here. This is just until I can actually get to do what I really want to do. And you answered that question. You're like, I'm selling insurance. You get the car. You're like, screw this. I'm. This is exactly what I was waiting on. Um, compare the processes because you've worn a bunch of different hats. You've acted. You've been behind the camera. You produce. You write. Compare the processes between you know, being a director, being a writer, writing a screenplay, and then writing a film, like how are they different? And you can kind of jump around to, to wherever you see fit.
0: Well, I think writing is the most um, solitary of, of those uh, experiences because, you know, sometimes people do a co-writing thing and I have opinions on that. Uh, But I think if you're writing a script or a novel On your own, or even a short story or a poem, it's really you and the page, you know. And and I've noticed, uh, Tony, that some really good writers hate writing, like they dread it or they get really worked up, and maybe because they're working on deadlines or or something. But I've seen a lot Mm -hmm. of anguish from writers, and luckily for me, I don't beat myself up about my writing. If I feel it, I feel it, and I write, and I'll, I'll write in like large quantities for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And right now I think I've gone like two months without really writing something, but I'm not, it's kind of like festering my mind, like, Hey, get back to writing, but I'm not beating myself up about it because I've been doing different things. So, uh, writing is very solitary directing. Uh, you know, I have a YouTube video, I think on my page somewhere, which is like the big daddy theory. Like I have this, uh, theory that especially with the low budget independent movies, when you're working with a lot of new actors and I'm I'm not putting them down, it's just something I've noticed. There's some real issues there sometimes with new actors um, or non-successful actors to be blunt, which is uh, daddy issues, you know, and for whatever reason, there doesn't seem to be mommy issues so much, but like there seem, and I think what it is is a lot of fathers don't give the pat in the back like, you kind of hear that expression, mm-hmm. mommy gives you the hug, daddy gives you the pat on the back. And I think a lot of people do get mommy's hug, but they don't get daddy's pat on the back as much. So I think a lot of creative types who become actors or actresses, they're always seeking on some level the pat on the back from daddy. And if you're a director, which I have been, and I kind of look like a dad, I mean, I'm a big guy and all that. So <laughs> they kind of.
1: That's three, right?
0: Yeah, so it's like they, they think um, on some level, they're looking for daddy's approval. And my idea or my thought is don't take advantage of that, but kind of play into it. You know, like yeah. different people respond to different things. And one thing that I've learned in my directing, um, I wasn't always the most vocal if I thought somebody was doing something well. Because my fear at that time, and this is maybe 10 or 12 years ago, If I give them too many compliments, they're going to get arrogant or they're going to stop working hard or they're going to change something. Mm. So I'll just keep my mouth shut and let them keep on doing it. Well, what I've kind of learned is you have to be a little more active than that. You know, it's better to say, great, that was awesome. You know, it's better to be more vocal with your actors than quiet. And I, I, at least for me, because like I said, that lack of daddy's approval in people's childhood and probably myself as well we're always looking for that pat on the back so as a director if you can have the patience if you can have the understanding uh to give that pat on the back that's going to help
1: yeah that directing piece where you talked about like the dad part because i know especially in our culture our society as americans you know when you hear like your son wants to go into theater right there's an automatic kind of stigma that goes with that. Now, if you go, hey, I want to be the next Steven Spielberg, dad might go, okay, yeah, that's cool. Like I know who Steven Spielberg is, or I want to be the next Christopher Nolan or the next Will Smith, or like they know who those people are. They're popular, they're huge, they make a lot of money. But if you go, hey dad, you know, I want to go into acting, or I wanna be a, you know, a director, you know, I want to write films, that doesn't sound as as manly, as masculine. And so there's probably some kind of push and pull with, uh, I would say, a generation, I would say at least before me, to where it's not as widely accepted. And so, like, when people are asking me, like, oh, you know, you're going to put the ball in your son's hand? Because everybody knows I like basketball and sports. I'm like, I want him to do what he wants to do, you know. Of course, he'll be introduced to basketball because that's what I do. But he'll also be introduced to music. You know, I have a guitar here. Also be introduced to to film and hopefully you know he can speak Spanish even though I don't but that's the second leading language in our country so I'm just trying to you know expose him to different things so you bringing that up it makes total to total sense total sense.
0: Well, I I, I give you praise for being a good dad, man, because that's a perfect answer when people are asking you you know you know put the ball in his hand and if he wants it he takes it you know if he doesn't he doesn't but. Uh, and then the thing about the Spanish, that's smart too. Um, you know, and I, to, the acting aspect of this, uh, mm-hmm. question is interesting because then it's like acting is very interesting because you're, you're kind of like, you're doing a lot of things at once. You're, you you're trying to entertain people at the same time. Mm-hmm. There is a thing of overacting, um, You're trying to get the gig, you know, in the first place, and then it's like you're going through this audition process, and there are websites like Actors Access that I use and other websites to find out about gigs. But a lot of times, like, you'll turn in audition tapes, especially since pandemic era are big now, where you just do a tape at home Mm -hmm. and you send it in. It wasn't so big before the pandemic, right? But now it's like it's accepted and it's even preferred to To do a audition tape, send it in, and see what happens. Well, nobody coaches you, and nobody directs you in those audition tapes. so if it say I'm playing yeah. the mailman, right? I could play the mailman as a jerk, as the friendliest guy in town, as a predator, mm-hmm. as a, a sympathetic character, as a clown. but if, if I'm just looking at the script and I'm not getting much indication on what this mailman's up to i I don't have access to the director of the movie or the casting director or anything. So what are my options? I can either coach myself through it, which at this point I'll probably do, or I can confer with a couple of acting friends or I can hire an acting coach. I will tell you this. I just, um, in July of this past year, 2022, I wrote and directed a proof of concept video, which is like a five minute video Uh, as a proof of concept for my book, screenplay, stage play, A Distance from Avalon. And I went on breakdown services, which is the actor's access way to get actors. I went through the whole process. I had about 150 actresses apply for the role. I told about 100 they could send in an audition tape, and about 40 did. So you go from 150 had some interest I gave the go-ahead to 100 out of 150, send me a tape. And of the 100, I gave the go-ahead to 40, took me up on it. And I would say that there's probably 10 that I could have worked with of the 40. Like, 10 were in the ballpark. But the young lady I chose, and I say she's young because she was only 19 at the time, but she um, she did a tape that was so good. I'm like, ah, oh, geez, you know, like she kind of nailed it in her audition tape. And uh, I'm like, this girl, Jessica is really great. The only thing about her audition tape is like, she had a fan in the background and the lighting wasn't that good. And you know, so forth. But her, her tape was like pretty spot on to what I was. I didn't know what I was looking for, but whatever I was looking for, she got it. And then when I started talking to her, And and the the reality is she she kind of beat out like a C-list celebrity. Like I had a a, my second choice was the C-list celebrity that turned in a tape, which was great and very flattering to me because I knew who this person was. Uh, But I went with the unknown uh, Jessica because I couldn't deny she had the better audition. And so when I talked to her about it, uh, she told me that she actually works with an acting coach. And she and the acting coach worked really hard on this process and nothing against the other ladies that auditioned because some of them that even weren't that good in the audition. I'm like, Oh yeah, I could use her for something else, you know? But, um, the fact that Jessica went through the process of, of working with an acting coach, I think she pretty much memorized the script in her audition. I couldn't tell, but it was like, she really took it seriously. She really nailed nail the thing, hit the ball out of the park, whatever you want to say. So as an actor, it it really is a thing where the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. I'm available as an acting coach for people. I I charge pretty, you know, minimum rates and uh, mikemessier.com people can contact me, but I'm I'm pretty good at this point with helping people quickly because I've been doing it for a while and I'm not necessarily looking to be somebody's acting coach for 20 or 30 years. If I can help you get going, that's probably my specialty is like take someone from ground zero to ground 50, you know, pretty quickly. Uh, if you're looking for like the best of the best acting coaches, you're going to be paying thousands of dollars for Larry Moss or Barry Primus or Howard Fine. But I'm available at much lower rates for more like beginning type of people.
1: And that's probably the biggest clientele. You got people who, I literally don't know what they're doing and they just kind of need somebody to go, OK, well, if you tweak this here, you change this a little bit, try this. And they go, oh, well, man, shoot, you know, I'm I'm on my way now, you know, just with those few tips. Um, when you're looking at getting actors or even looking at people to write or direct or whatever roles you're, you're feeling, is it kind of a, a, a gut feel kind of thing? Like what you said you saw, you were like, yep, that's it. Is that kind of normally how you how you choose people or what does that process look like when you're, I guess, assembling a team?
0: As far as casting the actors, yeah, it's, it's usually a gut. It's usually a gut instinct. I'm very open for the most part with things like age and ethnicity. I'm probably, you know, more strict. I do write male characters and I write female characters. I typically don't have too many Characters that are one, you know, like could go either way. Some some writers might do that, uh, but I typically, you know, I wouldn't say I never think of okay, this girl needs to be or this female character needs to be five foot nine, one hundred and thirty pounds with three tattoos. I I mean, and I've seen casting calls like that, Tony, and it, it I wouldn't say it drives me nuts, but I'm just like, how do you know that the actor who's six foot four isn't better or worse than the guy that's five foot 10 and they have a 50 pound weight, you know, like you can all, to me, it's like, um like, like pro wrestlers. Like there's some pro wrestlers, like an Eddie Guerrero that was on the shorter side, but he wrestled big, like he wrestled big, you know what I mean? And so if you wrestle yep, big actually, or you act big, you could play the bully and be five foot six, you know what I mean? So I, when I'm looking for people, I'm really, open to pretty much whoever wants to audition, uh, please do. And bro, I have gotten so many wonderful surprises. This lady, you know, ten years ago, Irina Pellegrad, was not our, you know, we didn't think of her right away because she had never done something like what we did and she she nailed it. You know, and then uh just just different things. My friend Lawrence O'Leary with uh my feature film Blood Sugar Sedace, he nailed it. And you know, some, some people audition stronger than others. So one thing I did with that most recent audition that, that Jessica got for um, many keys is the proof of concept I'm talking about. Um, I told the actresses, you can submit as many as three takes, meaning three attempts. And I'll watch all three because that's one thing, like I was saying earlier, like at, at the mailman analogy, like, I don't know if you want the funny mailman or the weirdo mailman, So I said to these actresses, give me three takes if you want. And not too many did, you know, like of the 40, maybe 10 or 15 did, you know, uh, three takes, but, but Jessica was one that did three takes. And I didn't say you had to do three takes because if someone was really confident that they were happy with the one take, that's fine too. But I guess as, as a guy that's done acting and writing and directing, I try to be sympathetic and empathetic to all of these
1: things as
0: best I can and try to give people the best opportunity to to show me what they've got.
1: Man, I'm just thinking of that and I'm thinking back to my classroom and I'm thinking back to coaching my girls in basketball and people are like asking for extra points and stuff. And I'm like, well, did you take advantage of the opportunities that I have given you over the past months? And if you say no, which I already know the answer, that's why I'm asking you the question. Then how do you expect now for you to, you know, reap the benefits or reap the fruits of whatever labor you put in? I'm like, okay, did you did you come to extra workouts? Have you been doing any workouts on your own? Do you got a trainer? And if it's like no, 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 I'm like, well, how do you expect to play in the game? Like you're awful, you know. So and also. When you said that, I thought about like just the creative part of it. Like, why wouldn't you want to go, Okay, I did the first take like this since I'm getting three takes. Right. Let me throw some more stuff at the wall. Give another take with something that's a little bit different. Give another take with something that's a little bit different since I'm getting them right. You get three attempts. Use all three. You never know which one is going to be the best one. And so man, it sounds like you you do a lot of grinding you know, you work, a, you work a lot, man.
0: Well, thanks, Tony. I appreciate that. You know, and I, you know, I, I do feel like I grind, you know, and, and, and to be honest, sometimes it's frustrating, you know, I mean, for the last, um, like for instance, I moved to Florida from, uh, I'm sorry, I moved to Florida from Rhode Island and then five months later we get a, something called a pandemic. So all that. Oh social, <laughs> so all that social networking, man, I'm going to get to town. I'm going to get some great girlfriend. I'm going to make a bunch of friends and make movies. And, and I'll be in Florida in the sun. And suddenly it's like, hey, stay home. Don't do any <laughs> the movies. The movie theaters are closed. And luckily for me uh, and other Floridians and, and probably in Texas, too, things were so much more free here than in the northeast. The first time I went to the Northeast, New England, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Mass. After the pandemic was April of 2021. Uh, my friend Tommy Denucci got me a role in his uh, Eric Roberts movie, Mr. Birthday, which I was happy to have. But when I got to Rhode Island, it's like, oh, my God, like my favorite coffee house is closed. The Starbucks, yeah. which was like the second choice across the street, you could go there. But there's a guy, a security guard kicking you out, like telling you that you can't stay in the in the starbucks and i'm like florida you know bro i'm going to disney world in the middle of the pandemic i'm wearing a mask and hanging out with mickey mouse and donald duck and you know snow white and it's like yeah you have to wear a mask but the crowds were so much smaller um but one thing i did during that time was i concentrated first on my book a distance from avalon this was actually written as a screenplay first and then because we had all this time to kill I was like, well, maybe I'll translate this to a a book. And then it's like, well, how do you, what do you do with that? Well, I discovered that Amazon actually put a freeze on their self-publishing for a little bit of time because of the pandemic. But then when they unfroze it, I was right there to start publishing my books. And nobody taught me how to do that. I watched a couple of YouTube videos. I was in touch with a guy who's going to charge me 500 bucks, which is not that much to publish my book on Amazon, but then I'm like, eh, I kind of figured it out on my own. I'll I'll keep my 500. And then this one, you would probably like, this is actually my advice book about film. It's got a long title, Art and War of Directing Student Low and No Budget Movies: A Primer for Creating and Participating in Independent Films, Television and Web Series, Mike Messier. So if people go to Amazon, they put Mike Messier Writer, or even if they go to MikeMessier.com and scroll to the bottom, they'll see links to all the books that I've written. And, um, but, you know, two and a half years ago, Tony, I didn't have one published book. And now I've got, I think, three novels, a graphic novel, a pro wrestling trivia book. And uh uh there, was, there was a total of six somehow. So uh you know on the film book so yeah so i mean it's just one of those things where you can always be creative on your own or with a team and circumstances might lead you to one or the other but always take advantage of whatever circumstance you're in
1: which one do you prefer
0: i like writing and acting is probably the most enjoyable um like i said writing just cuz it's solitary and here's a good thing about what i discovered with the novels tony I didn't have to worry about budget and I didn't have to worry about, will I ever get the money to fund this thing? In fact, it's kind of like that old, uh, I should have had a V8. It's like, why have I been writing screenplays for 15 years when not all of them get made? And if they do get made, I'm not always happy with them. Um, You know, and there's some, some exceptions like blood sugar today. So I'm very happy with how that got made, but some, some projects I've come on as a co-writer or a hired writer, I haven't been satisfied with the results. So why am I tormenting myself like that when I could just be writing these stories as novels and then they only even you know it it does matter to me how many people buy the books, but more importantly for me is that I wrote it in the first place and it's available in the first place. Like to me that's that's huge and then the amount of sales is like gravy on top of that. Um the acting I like just because You know, I guess for me it's like there's less stress with acting than there is with uh, with directing. With acting, it's like you're only really responsible for yourself, and I feel that I'm a good actor too. So if I have a role that's a good fit for me, I feel like I'm going to do a lot with it, and I think I'm going to surprise some people because I think a lot of people that know me don't think that I'm an actor or that I don't. Probably one of the best compliments I ever got, Tony, was at a film school in Maine when somebody was asking me what I was doing there, I said, I'm an actor in resonance. And they said, really, you don't act like an actor. And I, I think what they were saying was I wasn't always talking about myself and, and being dramatic about everything. So I appreciated that. I took it as a compliment. Maybe I shouldn't have, but um, so that's, that's my answer. Writing and acting are probably my favorite, but yet for some reason I'm driven to direct and produce as well.
1: What have you gotten a role where you go, huh? I didn't know if I would be able to do this, but now that I'm in it, like I'm kind of figuring out and like, it's pretty cool. You know, you may look for more rows in that vein, but have you ever gotten a row? I see you shaking your head for anybody that's watching this on video. I think he's got the exact story for it.
0: I think it kind of goes back to that hard luck uh, experience, um, which was the Sybil Shepherd, you know, playing Sybil Shepherd's son. And then the other characteristic was, the character's name was Eugene, which, you know, oddly enough, in pro wrestling world, there was a Eugene character at the time. And my character of Eugene in the movie was also mentally disabled, like that wrestling character. So I knew that Mario Van Peebles was a UFC uh, fan, but I didn't know if he was a WWE fan, but I, I took that. And I kind of went with it because at like maybe the second audition uh, the casting lady Annie told me to bring in some props if I wanted to, and she's like, "Bring some toys or something." So I I grabbed some wrestling action figures and a ring, like a toy wrestling ring and some action figures, and I brought them to the cast. <laughs> and and but this is this is the business where where we're in, you know. So I'm I'm in the casting thing and I'm I'm playing the mentally challenged kid, and this is where you know even th- this is 15 years ago, so even then. You could not to say get away with but it was more open
1: yeah right it, it, we were
0: we were less of a politically correct society when it came to stuff like this so i'm in i'm in this casting call like grunting and groaning with these action figures and it planted a seed because when i eventually got to the movie they actually Uh, piped in some pro wrestling audio in the background of the scene with me and Sybil Shepard and Mario, the director told me, Oh yeah, we liked your wrestling thing. So we put that in there that your guy is a wrestling fan. And, um, you know, and to, to do that character, I didn't sit there and watch like clinical evaluation tapes of mentally distressed people or anything, or, or mentally challenged people. I watched other movies I watched, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and What's Eating Gilbert Grape, and stuff like that. And I just kind of went with what I felt was good, you know, like this. This kid is suffering because because his mother. He's a mentally challenged kid, and his mother's a serial killer, right? So he's he's all types of screwed up. So, and and then he gets into a big fight scene with Wesley Snipes and Mario Van Peebles at the end of the movie because they've attacked his mom. So he's if there's one thing in life that he loves, it's his mother. So when you kind of, I kind of like just bear down the character to that, like just, and that's kind of like anybody, anybody, if you attack their mom would probably get very violent and that's what Eugene does. So in that sense, sometimes as an actor, you're thinking about a million different things, but if you just focus it on one or two or three, you might do better.
1: That reminds me of, uh, Lenny from Of Mice and Men, like kind of the character that you just descri- described, that I remember teaching when I taught English Street. Ah, oh, those days. Um, a couple more acting questions. Uh, who's somebody that you've worked with that is awesome that most people don't know about? This could be director, this could be actor, this could be in, in any, any of those kind of roles. Well, you know, I, I give this uh, young lady,
0: uh, we talked about her earlier, but J- Jessica Cabrera, um, I'm saying her name wrong, but Jessica. And when the piece is done, many keys, um, people will see that this young lady has real potential. And I think she did great in our piece. And then um, my buddy, Jose Gonzalves is really good. Jose has done a bunch of like kind of featured background or one a day player roles. He's actually in, um, Disregard the Vampire, a Mike Messier documentary. And I think I sent you the mm-hmm. link of Disregard. Yeah. So that's Jose's like the main guy, you know, and, uh, Jose and I are very good friends. And he, and I've been with him and he, he hustles. Like, you know, when I lived in Rhode Island, he invited me to see what he does, which is we drove from Rhode Island at like nine in the morning. We, we drive into New York City. He's paying the 40 bucks to park. We're walking through the middle of Manhattan to some crazy building, you know, through all the people, all the stuff that freaks me out, like New York city, the driving, <laughs> the, uh, the crowds. I really, I, I have a thing. I don't like crowds. Right. So we're going through all these people. We get to this building. You gotta, you gotta sign in. I mean, all this crap, man. And then, you know, we take, take the big elevator and, um, it's funny. Uh, he auditioned for like a day player role on a, on a, a TV series, like a law and order type of show. And then in the, in the lobby was uh, at the time, uh, Jennifer Hudson's husband, who was a actor wrestler guy. And I'm like, I know who this guy is that's, that's I I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but he was with Jennifer Hudson. Uh, they were married or together for several years. I think they split up recently, but he, we started talking to him and he's just, he's a nice guy who's there to try and get a gig just like my buddy. And yeah. it's just, I was impressed that Jose was in the same ballpark of this guy, you know, cause this guy had been on national TV for WWE raw and, you know, Jennifer Hudson's husband or whatever. And my buddy is going up against him for a role, you know? And uh, so those are a couple of people I'd mentioned. And, you know, my buddy, Tim Labonte, I should give him props because he's been with me for, we've been making movies together for almost, uh, you know, 15 years here. And uh, he he's a really great editor. He's a really great cinematographer. And uh, he's always keeping informed on the newest uh, programs and the newest ways to get things accomplished. You know, for instance, with this Disregard silent film that we just made, When that film was when the footage was created like eight years ago, we didn't have access to all the programs that Tim has now, specifically with like the editing and uh, making the pictures, making the images look better. So it's good to have a guy like for me. I'm not that big of a technical guy. So to have a technical minded friend who's also creative is very helpful to me.
1: So let's talk about your style. Because it's kind of. It, so, it sounds like you just do a, a ton of stuff. And so I did watch it. And so like halfway through it, I'm still thinking like, wait, what am I actually watching? Like, let's process this. And like, it was, it was so cool, honestly, because you don't see silent films anymore. And I'm like, I'm locked in. Like, honestly, I'm like, okay, you got the music going. And I always pay attention to music in, in everything, in anywhere that I am. But I'm so to get back to the question, right, where did your style come from to make the kind of stuff? Because it's a little bit dark, I would say. So, like, where did this kind of style come from? You know, man, I I think, Tony,
0: I probably, um, uh, you know, I won't go too personal, but I I had, you know, a childhood that had some trauma in it. And so I think that's always affected me. And one thing that I'll say about uh, my parents is they were both very generous in bringing me to the movie theater a lot, you know, like before I was old enough to drive, my dad would take me to movies. You know, he took me to see, uh, you know, the third Indiana Jones film. He even took me to see no holds barred, the Hulk Hogan, movie. <laughs> you know? and, uh, my mom, here's a funny story, buddy. Uh, for my birthday one year, Flash Gordon was a big thing in the theater, and my mom said, hey, you want to go see Flash Gordon? So we go see Flash Gordon, and that was just me and my mom. And then a couple of days later, I'm at home, and my dad, out of nowhere, said, hey, Mike, you want to go see Flash Gordon? So we go see Flash Gordon. But I, I never said, hey, Dad, I already saw it with Mom, but I just wanted to see the movie again. So, <laughs> But um, where does my style come from, the darkness or the 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 uh, the horror – With that disregard silent film you just watched, and it's kind of a, a sister piece to disregard the vampire, a Mike Messier documentary, that film was not intended to be a silent film. The film eventually became a silent film because we had recorded very poor audio. We made a major technical error with the audio back in 2014 it was so and and also the lead actor quit not the guys that you see on screen not jose and scorpio but another guy that was cast in the edgar role actually i wouldn't say he quit but circumstances led him to not be in the movie and we had basically a six-day shoot and we had a location that was way over our head as far as you know getting any more time with it and so forth and so I made this movie called Disregard the Vampire, a Mike Messier documentary, which took me three years basically to finish. And it was a 40 minute doc about, you know, more or less the failure of making a feature film horror film on no budget. And then Mm. that documentary has won 13 awards. It just played at the San Angelo uh, Film Festival, the San Angelo Revolution Film Festival, I should say, uh, just a few months ago. And the movie's been very well-received, especially by people who make movies because they get it, you know, they get the struggle. What I sent to you is very newly finished. We finished that about two weeks ago. And that was after watching the documentary a couple of thousand times, after watching the raw footage a couple of thousand times, it finally clicked into my head. There actually is a story here. Not the story that we necessarily wanted to film, but a different story is developing. And if I put the time into it, we can make something like this watchable. And the other part of it was a friend of mine uh, named Chris Anino, a guy from Mystic, Connecticut. He um, made a silent film that I helped him make, you know, like three or four years ago. So Chris made his silent film. It's called Silent Times. I watched it. I was like hey that, that's actually pretty good so then i it, yeah, it just yeah. planted the seed like hey what's what's the thing that's hanging over my head which is basically this disregard the vampire footage and i said man i can i can make a silent film out of this and uh it took me and tim about a year from me saying that because now tim lives in rhode island i live in florida he actually came down to florida last summer so we could edit for a week. So, I mean, the guy, dri- <laughs> this is a good friend, you know, the guy drives from Rhode Island to Florida, taking time away from his wife and his job and his cats. And rather than go to the beach for a week, we're sitting in a condo editing for a week, you know, and, and getting dinner at night and stuff like that. But I was very grateful for Tim for doing that. And we also filmed the uh, the piece, Many Keys with Jessica that I was talking about. So uh, the point to all that buddy is where did my style come from? I think it's, it's just having some traumatic experiences when I was a kid. um, My parents did not really think about, Oh, he's not 13. We shouldn't take him to this movie. I was like 10 and seeing poltergeist or, you know what I mean? Seeing, seeing movies that (laughs) that were seeing movies that were pretty intense for as a child. So um, some of that stuff just got into my system and then some, real life stuff, as I grew older, was pretty traumatic too, you know?
1: Yeah, what we put out is a reflection of what we have inside, you know? And hopefully we put more good things out than things that will be considered bad. But I think, you know, we're all different, you know, we all have a certain style right to life and what that looks like. And so you hear it all the time, especially with kids, right? I'm always talking about my classes, but. People go, oh, that's weird. I'm like, yeah, well, let's take it easy here on a weird word, okay? Just because they do something that's a little bit different that you don't understand or you may not even like. Let's not call it weird. Like, different is cool because that's exactly what it is. So last acting question. I feel like we can literally go on for another hour. But last acting question. Which award are you most proud of? Because you have a ton of them. Which one you go like, yep. I'm glad that that is recognized in that way, because maybe it's the kind of work you put in for it. Maybe it's the process around it. Like you talked about the documentary and all the difficulties that you had with it. So which award do you go? Yep, that's the one.
0: Well, um, I'll say this. I, I think I've won three awards from the Nassau Film Festival, which is in Princeton, New Jersey. So like that festival, you know, I went there for the first time, I think, in 2018. Um, it was actually the 2017 and won an award, uh, and then came back a few more times. And the guy there, Lou Goldstein's a great guy. He's been very supportive. But as far as one actual award for one project, um, the Shauna Shea, uh, Memorial Film Festival is pretty, uh, powerful because my friend, uh, Skip Shea and his wife, uh, unfortunately, they uh, lost one of their twin daughters in a car accident. She was pretty young too. I think she was, I want to say 17 or 18 or 19. And uh, this young lady, you know, and she had a surviving twin um, who's gone on to be a mom herself. And so now Skip and his wife and our grandparents, but rather than shout out. Yeah, definitely. Rather than just sit there and, you know, be sad or, or which is perfectly understandable, but they, they did something in honor of their daughter. They have promoted and created and fostered the Shauna Shea Memorial Film Festival uh, out of Massachusetts uh, for several years. And uh, one of my films, actually the one we were talking about earlier, uh, The Disregard of the Vampire, a Mike Messier documentary, uh, it actually, I believe it premiered and won Best Doc at that festival in 2017. And to me, that was a very redemptive story because the process of making that doc which was not supposed to be a doc it was supposed to be a narrative horror film and my you know my lead actor who i kind of put on a pedestal can't do it and blah 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 it kind of felt like a vindication or a validation or both to me like hey you know this this movie means something this doc means something there's something here blah 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 and also like i said uh, just the fact that the, the film festival is in honor of a young lady that was very creative and <clears throat> unfortunately passed away before, you know, she could live, uh, you know, to middle age and, and so forth. It it means a lot. So that that's something that I remember. And then, of course, like I said, my buddy Lou Goldstein up in Nassau Film Festival and even some of the film festivals I've been doing here in Florida mean a lot. You know, like I've I've been accepted to the Fort Myers Beach International Film Festival twice as a screenwriter in the last two years and Vero beach film festival last year for a one minute film. And it's always nice to, to get some recognition and meet some other filmmakers and do stuff like that.
1: So sir, Mikey in reverence to the wonderful discussion we're about to have about something that you're very passionate about. I'm going to introduce our next number. Okay. That is 63. And this is the oldest active wrestler. Do you know who it is?
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Uh-oh. 63 no, is the oldest active,
1: oldest active wrestler. Well, Ric Flair was... just
0: retired at 73. Are you talking about Sting?
1: There you go. Okay. I'm not surprised that you knew.
0: Okay, Sting. So I yeah. just
1: you know, I grabbed that from a website. You know, I'm like, I'm not about to do too much searching. I know he'll know Sting 100. So.
0: Yeah,
1: wrestling is something that is very near and dear to your heart.
0: Yeah, you'll sting. How there, did you <laughs> get
1: introduced to wrestling? Who introduced you to wrestling? What is the story? And that is a great action figure that you have there stinger, on man. the screen. Sting, the old um, school Sting,
0: old school Sting. That's nineteen ninety, Great American bat Well, something like that. Yeah, that's yeah. It's probably the Bash ninety when he beat Flair. Um, when I was a kid. Uh, for some reason, I always cite the Wild Samoans, which would actually be Roman Reigns' his father, Sika, and his brother, Offa. But it, I actually started watching a little bit before that. I was uh, the Strongbows, um, Chief J and Brother Jules Strongbow against Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito. I, I'm I'm really going way back here, man. I I mean, the first main event I saw was Andre the Giant versus Blackjack Mulligan in the Texas death Match, and Playboy Buddy Rose against... Uh, Bob Backlund for the title. And that that's what I saw live, you know? So, I mean, and then uh, I ended up seeing a Rick Flair versus Nikita Koloff 56 minute match in Baltimore. You know, they, they go, they wrestle for 56 minutes and then Flair gets disqualified for putting Nikita over the top rope. And like, at the time I was just happy to see a really good match, you know, like these days, the, fans would give that two and a half stars because they didn't get a clean finish. But at the time I was just happy to see Ric Flair wrestle for 56 minutes against Nikita. And uh, I don't know if anyone really got me into it besides myself. I think it was a deal where I was like a Saturday morning cartoon kid and Mm -hmm. flipping the channels. And then that's what happened. Like I flipped over to channel 20 WDCA out of uh, Washington DC and saw I think it was just WWF wrestling, you know, and, uh, just kind of got into it. And then a couple of months later, I discovered that if you crank the UHF channel thing at a, at a Baltimore, you'd have Georgia championship wrestling with like King Kong Bundy and Ronnie Garvin and the road warriors. And then I started going to, you know, as a kid, you don't go to drugstores too often, but when I did start seeing that, Oh, there's this pro wrestling illustrated and there's sports review wrestling and the world of wrestling magazines before the cable TV explosion for wrestling. I, I really just got the tail end of that, like the 70s, 80s tail end of the territory days. But the pro wrestling magazines back then, bro, uh, they were something else, you know what I mean? They were just here's an example, but like they, they were just pretty awesome, you know what I mean? And uh, Bill Apter, and that's that's a one with Andre the Giant and Abdul the Butcher and Nick Bockwinkel, and you know I've that's I've kind such. of been revisiting my childhood in the last couple of years because I've been kind of buying and selling stuff on eBay. You know I have the uh, the foreign object eBay store where I sell some of my wrestling stuff, and then I, I buy stuff too. The Ron Simmons thing I think you mentioned in the notes. Um, yes, I was please. there, yeah, Ron. I met Ron Simmons a couple of years ago, which was great. Cause I could tell him, I said, Hey man, I was there when you won the belt. And he said, which one, which is a great response. And I said, the big one when you, you beat Vader. <laughs> and then for people that don't know this little trivia bit, it was August 2nd, 1992, Baltimore, Maryland, Ron Simmons became the first uh, African-American, uh, WCW world heavyweight singles champion. He was already a tag team champion the year before, but here he was as the singles champion. And, uh, They really had an awesome storyline. They had uh, Rick Rude versus Nikita Koloff for the U.S. title. Sting was doing commentary with Jim Ross, and Sting was supposed to wrestle Vader later that night for the world title. And then Mick Foley gets in the ring. You know, as Cactus Jack. He's beating up Nikita. Sting can't stand to watch his friend Nikita get two-on-one. So he leaves the commentary booth to make the save. So now you got four guys fighting, and then suddenly from the audience, Jake the Snake Roberts comes out with his snake, and he gives Stinger a couple of DDTs and puts the snake on him. And then they're like, hey, folks, uh, Sting has been ruled inactive. He's injured. He can't wrestle Vader. We're going to pick a name out of a hat. (laughs) So they bring in Ron Simmons, Barry Windham, Dustin Rhodes, Rick Rude, and and a couple of other guys, I think Van Hammer and uh, they picked the name out of the hat, which was Ron's, and then him and Vader pretended, basically had a really good match. They had like a 10-minute match, and Ron uh, caught Vader with the power slam and pinned him, and somewhere in the background on the, the wide shot, you can vaguely make out me and my friends standing up and cheering for this, because we were pretty happy to see a world title change, and Ron Simmons was one of these guys that had uh, done the tag team thing with doom. He had wrestled Lex Luger a bunch of times the year before, and uh, he got a, he got a world title run. So it was nice to be there for it.
1: And when you look at stories about Ron Simmons, cause I went down my, my own kind of WWE rabbit hole once the pandemic hit, like I was watching all of these different old matches. I think it was on Vimeo where you can just find all these, like the whole match and just watch it. And so and everybody that talked about Ron Simmons was like, like, this is a guy's guy. Like, you do not screw with Ron Simmons. Like, he will hit you in the face for real if you mess around. But he was so well respected and just how people talked about him. It's so cool to see that, that this person that carried himself this way was the first, you know, African-American or black champion, world champion that we had. That's so cool. Um, Who was like one of your favorites, you know, growing up?
0: I liked um, a couple of guys. I liked Rocky Johnson, which is Ronnie, uh, the Rock's father. I also liked uh, Ronnie Garvin, the man with the hands of stone. And then uh, I liked the British Bulldogs as a tag team. I liked the Road Warriors, the Steiners. Um, As I got a little bit older, I started to realize how much I enjoyed Ric Flair's wrestling. And I can remember like when I kind of went from being a guy that would kind of cheer for the other guy to beat Ric Flair to when I was cheering for Ric Flair to beat the other guys is when he went over to WWF in 91 and that's when I was like I became a real Flair fan when I felt like this was the guy carrying the torch of the National Wrestling Alliance to show these WWF pretenders that he was the real deal wrestler and uh, as I've gotten older uh, Brian Pillman and Barry Windham and Magnificent Morocco are wrestlers that along with flair kind of like my little mount rushmore there of wrestlers because i realized like these were not necessarily the main event guys all the time although they all had great careers but i just think they were all very uh entertaining and seemed legitimate like Wyndham and pillman and morocco all seemed legitimate and uh of of those guys i got to have a lunch and spend some time with uh, Brian Pillman jr which was nice you know because he was here in Jacksonville and uh, we met up at a coffee house and and uh, we're in touch a little bit on social media so the interesting story with that guy you know his his father passed away basically when Brian jr was like two two or three years old so he he doesn't really remember too much about his dad but then he, he has guys like me and everybody else thats oh your dad did this your dad did that so what a Kind of an interesting path that you're walking in the footsteps of your father, but at the same time, you never really had a big connection with him other than when you were a child because he passed away uh, at a young age. So he's a good guy and it's good to see him doing stuff in wrestling.
1: I know for me, uh, it was about like kind of like the, the smaller guys, you know, because so I was a big Hardee's fan because I was born in 89. So. Attitude era. It's pretty much the era that I grew up with. Uh, so the Hardy Boys, you know, with Jeff and those guys, and they having those crazy matches with like Edge and Christian and uh, the Dudley Boys and the tables and all that stuff was crazy. And then uh, Shawn Michaels, uh, and he and, and Bret Hart, and you got the Montreal Screwjob, and my older cousin, he's really going to appreciate all of this. He was the biggest Bret Hart fan, and I was the Shawn Michaels guy. Because, you know, it was the smaller guys. Because I'm, what, 5'8 and some change. You know, I grew up pretty skinny. And so I'm like, man, I root for those guys. And then as I got older, I really gravitated towards, like, Chris Jericho. Because I felt like he just, like, he owned it. Like, he was the heel. And he didn't give a crap. And he was one of the few guys that could go toe-to-toe with somebody like The Rock. You know, on the mic. You know, talking trash. Go for it. Go.
0: First day in the company, Jericho goes toe to toe with the mic on the mic with The Rock.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't care. He's going after the guys and, you know, obviously Stone Cold and just his attitude. So that's pretty much Kane was another guy I really liked, even though he wasn't small. Like when he stepped in the ring, like everybody scattered. Like this dude was such a force and so athletic. Like him and Undertaker, those guys moved like they were you know, six, one or six, two, they were just flying around the ring. So those are some really cool, like wrestlers that I gravitated more towards. How do you think, uh, what do you think of wrestling now as it is, you know, as opposed to what it was before, you know, what you growing up, what are some, some similarities and some differences?
0: That's a great question. I mean, um, well, the biggest difference I'd say is that the whole, you know, kayfabe, wink wink to the mm, audience yes. thing when i was a kid that wasn't part of it it was these guys were doing the state athletic commissions these guys were defending the business at every turn and then you had things like the the 2020 you know thing with john stossel getting slapped by dr d david schultz and you had you know some wrestlers kind of outing the business of you know blading their foreheads and that was a big deal when i was a kid you know and then um As you progress through the 80s, by the end of the 80s, you know, Vince McMahon, for financial reasons, basically didn't want to pay the tax uh, to the state commissioners anymore. And I can understand that. And so he used the term sports entertainment and said, we're like the ice capades, you know, and I get it. Who wants to pay money that you don't have to for for bogus commissions? I get I understand it. At the same time, I think it lost something for me and probably old school fans that kind of liked. Yeah, we know that it's predetermined. We know that it's not on the up and up, but we like the mirage of thinking that it is, (laughs) you know, like that's that's the fun of it. And so I think when Vince putting business first, um, you know, putting money first over the mystique, I think that's the biggest thing that I use when I talk about this stuff, the mystique of pro wrestling at least from my point of view, has gone down. What's gone up on the positive side, I'd say that, you know, maybe I hate, I don't hate to say it, but I will say it. I think the the match quality overall is higher now. You know, back when I was a kid, you would sit through a lot of squash matches, you know, Magnificent Morocco beating up SD Jones or Big John Stud beating up, uh, Bob Bradley or something like that, you know, or the the Malky's getting squashed by the Road Warriors. Like, you'd sit through a lot of one-sided things because the idea was when you go to the, you're going to have to pay your 20 bucks to get into the arena and see them have a good match. Like, you're going to have to see the Road Warriors versus the Midnight Express in Baltimore and pay 20 bucks to go there rather than see it on TV for free. Well, you know, but sometimes you'd go to the arena and that match would end in a DQ you know what i mean so my point is like now i think the fans maybe the 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 smart marks as they say or the the wrestling observer fans we put a higher demand on the wrestling promotions to have clean finishes and so on and so forth that i think and and the generation of wrestlers now kind of grew up with that mentality like they want to get the five-star match or they want to steal the show and You know, even back in the day, like the first match on a pay-per-view was often a squash match, you know, like it was often a throwaway match. And now the first match on a pay-per-view is often the second biggest match on the show. And um, Brock Lesnar has defended, I think, at WrestleMania four or five years ago. I think Brock Lesnar and Seth Rollins had the first match on WrestleMania for the title. So crazy. That's the event match. Right. And back in the day, you'd be watching Johnny Rods versus Billy Travis, you know, for 15 minutes or something like that. Right. So I think the match quality has gone up. I think the access, here's the biggest thing. If if you could show the access of wrestling matches, wrestling information, if you could time capsule today's stuff and bring it to a wrestling fan in 1982, they would flip flip their mind because they're like oh my god you can get on this thing called a personal computer and you can find all this information and you can watch all these shoot interviews and and the wrestlers are telling you stories of being on the road and the debauchery and you can watch these you know, you can turn on your basic cable and go to a and e or vice and see pro wrestling shows tons of wrestling content without even having peacock uh or even I said this to my friend Tommy a few years ago. We were watching the Peacock. I mean, sorry, we were watching the WWE Network. And I said, man, can you imagine that like four or five, you know, I said at some point in the future, we're going to look back and say, those days with the WWE Network were the best of times because you could pay 10 bucks a month and watch all this wrestling content. And it's still kind of like that with Peacock, but it's a little bit different. Um, So just the If if you want to, Make a time machine, and you just want to. I mean, I do this. I watch Memphis wrestling from 1983 or Georgia Championship wrestling from 1984. Japanese wrestling, tons of stuff on YouTube you can find and and pick and choose. Um, I'm I'm still a fan. I, I mean, I went to an NXT show a couple of weeks ago here in Jacksonville. I went to AEW show Rampage in Jacksonville uh, a couple of months before that, and uh, I, I went to probably 40. AEW shows at Daly's place in Jacksonville, and uh, had a great time. But would I trade some of that to see super, superstar Billy Graham versus Billy Jack Haynes in Orlando? You know, twenty five years ago, I probably would too. So, but I, I think it's just a deal where I may not like everything about wrestling today. Like for instance, the Young Bucks. I mean, I did a whole video where I, you know, kind of ranked on them because they were they they were super kicking an eight year old at a birthday party. You know, as as a gimmick or a joke, but to give them credit, they helped put together AEW. They have really good matches. They're like you said, kind of smaller guys, but they hustle, and and they help make things happen. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's still wrestling to me. I'm not. I don't like the term sports entertainment. I don't like the E in WWE. I think that's ridiculous. It's like going to see an action movie and going to see a, an action movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the movie's called fake action movie with uh, special effects. When they put entertainment on world wrestling entertainment right there in the name of the company, you're exposing it as being fraudulent or fictional. And it's like, why do you have to hammer that over the people's head? Why couldn't they just call that world wrestling? I would have just called, instead of calling it World Wrestling Entertainment, if they had to get rid of the F, call it World Wrestling. Be done with it. You know, so I, I'm pretty outspoken with my wrestling takes. I'm unsubscribed to Mike Messier YouTube channel. I have a couple of hundred, if not thousand, pro wrestling rants for pro wrestling fans. I just did one on AEW yesterday, which is getting some traction. I, I said an AEW loyalist, uh, you know, takes issue with Tony Khan's recent booking because I had a lot of issues with AEW right now. Which I'm I'm more of an AEW fan, but I'm I'm not going to hold back when they're doing some dumb things. I think
1: you know, right? I I do like a couple of things. So I, I remember watching an interview with Undertaker. He's like, "There's no way that I could be the Undertaker today, like I was before, because the the veil has been ripped." You know, you can. When we were growing up, we believed as kids that The Undertaker was literally a dead person walking around, beating up these guys in the ring, and that his brother was Cain, and he came back, and we were afraid, like, what is going to happen next? This is insane. You can't, you, there's nothing that's really believable anymore. It's like, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Like you said, let me believe, like, I, I kind of know that it's fake, but let me, you know, lead me on a little bit in this, right? <laughs> when, when there's a movie, it's called Suspending Disbelief, right? We know it's all fake, okay? Just put on your imagination here with us for a second, okay? And let's just walk down this, this road where the fiend is coming out, and he's this monster, okay? Right? Or when, you remember when Rhino, no, it wasn't Rhino, it was Taz, Remember when Taz was coming and they threw that thing up on the screen? I'm like, man, this Taz dude is going to come and kill everybody. And I I don't know what to do. You know, I'm like waiting for SmackDown on Thursday because Taz is coming and he finally comes and he's like choking everybody out. And like, I'm like, this guy's a maniac. You know, so I missed that part. But it's really cool to watch the interviews and people talk about like who the cool guys are like who people really respect in the locker room, who you who is the great person to travel on the road with, like what happened with this match? You know, the Stone Cold's podcast and show is, is so awesome where he has guys come on. He's like, and he and Booker T talked about a time when they had a match and he hit them too hard. And then he was like, all right, I got one coming back for you. But, it, but when you're watching the matches on TV, like you don't know about all this background information. So it's, it's really cool for me to go back and listen to stuff and you kind of start to see, oh, like that's what was going on. Oh, wow. Or wow, nobody likes Brock Lesnar. Everybody hates this guy. And that kind of thing is, I think it's just really cool to see like that behind the scenes stuff. Anything last you want to add with wrestling? I see you want to jump in here. Uh,
0: Well, it just reminds me of um, a couple of things real quick. Kind of like as you were describing uh, the shoot interviews and the behind the scenes stuff with wrestling, it's kind of the similar thing with when DVD film commentaries were a big deal. Like when DVDs were the first, you know, 2000 to 2010 or 2015, before streaming, people would actually buy DVDs and they'd love to put on the director's commentary and listen to your top directors break down their movie. And I think that's one thing that um, is kind of missing from streaming services. As far as I know, they don't really have that option. So I think what, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, the 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 mystique of wrestling has gone away but kind of that behind the scenes stuff uh has come bigger and more forefront i i credit something that people seem to forget about the show tough enough that the wwe did on mtv yeah yeah, yeah. i mean that that was like what i didn't like i i liked the show a lot i enjoyed watching it it actually put the template down for the ultimate fighter in a lot of ways but when you watch that show and you see, like, okay, here's Jackie Gata, and she's training, and she's learning to take a bump, and she's learning to work an injury angle, and now let's go over to Raw or SmackDown, and Jackie Gaeta's wrestling a match. To me, it kind of puts some of those tough enough competitors at a disadvantage because now the wrestling fan isn't buying into them as characters. They're buying into them as people that want a reality contest. Uh, Miz I, did very I... well with that. Um, I was actually a friend with a guy named Brian, uh, who was on a tough enough series. Uh, the one with them is, and ryback And unfortunately, uh, you know, Brian passed away a few years ago, but he, he had some interesting stories. He tore his uh, chest muscle in the audition process. And then they ended up giving him a, uh, contract for OVW probably as a way to avoid a lawsuit. You know what I mean? Um, but that's another story, but, um, I still I still like wrestling and uh there's a lot to it. I've wrest I I've I written a couple of scripts. The wrestling with sanity graphic novel is up there. I wrote a great script called American Luchador, uh The Dream of Lobo Fuego, which I'd love to get made at some point. So I'm I'm still a big time wrestling fan, but my personal tastes are probably more to like fifteen, twenty years ago.
1: Now these are some, some areas here that overlap a bit. Cause we see a, a bunch of wrestlers, they dip into acting. You know, you got Cena who's done stuff. Obviously, The Rock is a freaking movie star now. Uh, you got Batista who's in Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, and then you have some other like smaller films that people have been in. How do you see like that that overlap happen? You know, and and are you watching guys in wrestling and you go oh, they might be actually good on the big screen or the small screen or on a, I don't know if we're going to go as far as a, a screenplay, but you see anybody that, that you feel like would do really good, like actually being an actor, kind of like like the rock honed his skills? Well, that's a great question.
0: Um, you know, I could see off the top of my head, for some reason Darby Allen comes to mind. Like if you had the, you know, and I think uh, MJF, to give him credit, was like, you know, school shooter Darby, or you know, like like Darby Allen in AEW has like a really—he's 140 pounds. He's what five foot four, but he's not afraid to throw his body around. And if you had him, yeah. he—I mean, not to get too morbid, but he could play a school shooter, or he could play the kid that gets bullied and then gets revenge, or whatever. Right. Um, I mean, so that's a typical
1: kind of piece, yeah.
0: Yeah, and then, I mean, you think about, you know, even some of the women wrestlers, um, you know, my friend just directed Sasha Banks in his movie, and I get to see a little sneak peek of the footage from Boston, and And Mercedes is a great actress, you know, and um, there's a lot of people, you know, I'll say that Alexa Bliss, I'm surprised she's still in the WWE, to be honest with you. I mean, she's, I mean, let's face facts, she's so beautiful and so kind of like that thing, which is really hard to get, which is to be an attractive woman that guys fantasize and love and put on a pedestal, but women for whatever reason are not terribly threatened because in a way she could be seen more, more as cute than as like hot. But I think most guys think she's hot, but you know, so, I mean, I think Alexa bliss is just super money. and, And if the sooner she gets out of wrestling and gets into films, the better off she'll be, you know, less bumps, more money, uh, for her. Um, I was lucky enough to work with a couple of wrestlers. Um, uh, at least they tried to, but if, if you look up Chris and the coffee girl, the Philadelphia experiment, it's a uh, Raven ECW, uh, hardcore legend Raven yeah, yeah. and I kind of dueling, uh, on set for four hours in a mini series on my, you know, subscribe to Mike Messier YouTube channel. Uh Kevin Nash actually came out and acted in a movie yeah. that I co wrote called The Manor. And that was pretty interesting to see, you know, a character that I basically created and here's Big Sexy, all seven feet of him walking around. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And like I'm just kind of I'm in I'm in the and I, I got a role in that movie too. So I'm in character and I'm looking outside and there's Kevin Nash and uh he's a big man. I mean his his head is big, he's tall. Nice guy, and uh, we actually had a scene together in the movie, The Manner. And uh, the scene is that our characters are kind of at odds. So I actually kind of stepped up, you know, to big sexy a little bit, and we didn't throw punches yeah. or anything, but I did get kind of in his in his personal space. And uh, my friend, the director or the producer, told me afterwards. He said, uh, "Hey, Kevin, really liked your acting. He was like, man, you know, I was kind of feeling that for real. You know, meaning like he felt the aggression." And uh, that was a huge compliment because I'm a big fan of his uh, acting in the movie Dog, and uh, and everything. Uh, I didn't really watch the Magic Mike movies, but I heard he was very good in that. But I mean, the movie Dog he did was really he did really well in that. So yeah, there's there's probably more wrestlers. Um, what's it? I have a hard time saying his last name, but Sammy Guevara, you know, Take Conti's husband in AEW, the Latin God. Um, he's, he's total pretty boy could be an actor anytime. And, and, you know, Tay could be a a great actress and, uh, Britt Baker. I mean, Dr. Britt over in AEW, I mean, she could really, uh, be funny in a movie. Like, can you imagine her in a romantic comedy as the bad girl or like the mean ex-girlfriend or something, you know? So a lot of these wrestlers are probably more realizing now because of the rock and Batista and Cena. Hey you know, more money, less bumps. So probably more are going to get into film, film acting.
1: You think because of the kayfabe aspect, it kind of prepares them a little bit to be able to go into character on screen, or you think maybe the other way?
0: No, I, th- I think that helps. I mean, I think when when you've been a wrestler and you've kind of played big for the camera and, and a live audience, like if you think about it, like the actual, i I really don't like it when people say, wrestlers are actors because I think they're two distinct professions. But that being said, being a wrestler in front of a live audience, that is like improv acting. And I, I actually wrestled a few matches myself way back when, and there is some similarities. Yeah. I, I did uh, mad dog, Mike Messier. Once again, on subscribe to Mike Messier, YouTube channel. Um, I had a dog chain match it was my retirement match, but there is, there is a lot of improv improvisational skills that like go into pro wrestling. I mean, imagine if, if a guy misses a move. I mean, we saw that like what uh, CM Punk and ha- Hangman page last summer, like CM Punk botches the, the buckshot lariat, and then they have to figure it out. And, you know, you have things like botchamania that point out the flaws and everything. But for the most part, these guys are pretty good and women about covering mistakes. So that's the thing about doing theater, man. I've done live dinner theater and, if if I drop a line, my scene partner should not say, hey, Mike, you forgot the line because we get a live audience. The scene partner has to figure it out and cover for me. And, and I've, you know, some some actors don't want to do that. They don't want to think of themselves as part of a team, but they're not going to get very far unless they do.
1: Uh, that brings us full circle, Mike. Uh, acting is. Maybe one day, Mike, you cast me at something. I'll show up, <laughs> okay, Mike. We've come to the part where I ask everyone these questions. They're my three whats, and you can go for as long or as short as you would like with these with these answers, so my first what what's an opinion that you have that will be considered unpopular? Wow,
0: oh man, that's a good one um Wow. As for as uh, geez. go uh, Yo, wherever you want with it. <laughs> I'm trying to think of because there's 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 so many, and then there's um, I guess I, I guess I would say, I, I guess I'll get a little um, I, I this is a joke. When I first moved from New England to Florida, the uh, a, a joke because I wanted to do a stand up set where I talk about the differences of living in Florida versus Rhode Island. And the first kind of joke I formulated for this set, which I haven't done yet, is like: as I was driving south to move to Florida, I could feel my blood getting redder with every state going further <laughs> south. <laughs> like, I could, I could feel like, like because cause there's subtle things like you go into a a drug sh- not a drug sh- you go into like a convenience store or a hotel lobby yeah. or anywhere where there's like a TV playing, and you start seeing less cnn and more fox news as you're going further down the south right so it's like these kind of things um i think for me a big thing that is it's it's really a split vote but i'm i'm kind of for me female high school students and female college students and female pro students are at a huge disadvantage especially with combat sports where they can get really hurt if they're fighting transgender women. And uh, when I say fighting, people may not think about it, but there have been mixed martial arts fights. Uh, Joe Rogan talks about it and shows the footage of of this uh, transgender woman. Right. Transgender lady beating the crap out of a, a, a natural born female. And it's like, wait a minute. This is a lawsuit waiting to happen in in Connecticut um there was a big story of these two transgender uh women track track right and they're destroying people and it's like you know I think what it is buddy is I don't have daughters I don't have kids but for me I just see that as unfair and the the counter to that I'm not satisfied with any of the counters to that you know I, I sat there and I watched uh who's the the late night tonight guy or this week tonight or tomorrow tonight guy on HBO, John Oliver. Yeah. John Oliver yeah, sure. did a whole thing, you know, about, about, uh, defending the transgender athletes. And look, I think they should have a right to compete as well, but I just right. don't think it's fair if they're competing against natural born females that are trying to win scholarships and mm-hmm. trying to, to improve themselves. And it's discouraging natural born females to compete because they're going to get blown away by someone who has this advantage. And I think it's kind of like, sometimes people can use science as a crutch and it's like, you know what the eyeball test, this person has bigger, right? This, this person has bigger shoulders or bigger thigh muscles than this person because of a genetic situation that they had and if they change their identity or their sexual orientation or whatever um gender gender identification that's their business and that's that's good for them but why does it have to be at the uh disadvantage to these female athletes so that's that's probably my hot take on that score
1: that is pretty hot but i'm gonna have to agree and i agree like they should be able to compete but there has to be a different way to do it a waiver, a different category, something because a lot of times it's just completely unfair. Uh, Okay. Next. What if you weren't in acting film production, this entire industry that you're in, what would you be doing? What field would you be working in? My guess is not insurance.
0: (laughs) That's a good one. Um, You know, The only thing that I can think of, buddy, is uh, maybe I maybe if I really applied my chess game, I I used to I'm fairly decent chess player, but I've never really studied books or anything. But I mean, I've I've held my own with some pretty good chess players. So I'll, I'll just say that a competitive chess player.
1: Okay, Mike, full of surprises here. All right. Last what? What advice would you give to someone? In high school, so if I play this for my kids I take it back ages fourteen to say nineteen you know somebody on that early or late in what would you say to those kids
0: the the, the, the most flippant thing I'd say is start a YouTube channel you know like if and it you know start a YouTube channel it's it's the probably the most common thing that's being used by a lot of people it's not to say that you'll i mean I know a I know a kid he's literally a kid who's got what's a ASMR, you know what I'm talking about? Like the, the sounds mm-hmm, and stuff. Mm-hmm. The guy is young guy. He's like 12 or 14 now. And he's got like millions of subscribers and it's like, uh, it, it's impressive, you know? And, um, I would just say, if you want to express yourself, don't wait for permission. Don't wait for the phone to ring. Uh, you can do whatever you want. You can start, but there with, with, as long as you got a smartphone with a decent camera on it, you know, even when I was starting this stuff, we didn't have smartphones with decent cameras on them. So you actually had to go out and buy a Sony VX 2000 or a VHS camcorder. Uh, My book is full of good advice. You know, my film book, I've got some, you know, stories in there and some, some references to other books that are good, but I'd say um, to the high school kid, I would probably the, the most flipping piece of advice um, start your own YouTube channel. And then if you want to find some stuff, look for, um, Michael Caine acting in film on YouTube. It's like a PBS special. It's like on YouTube somewhere. And, um, I had an acting teacher named Tim Hillman who, uh, unfortunately passed away, but he made a bunch of great acting videos and they're really like, uh, what he you undiscovered, you know, like he's, he's got a couple of hundred views, for his videos, but they should be in the thousands or millions. Cause the guy really just breaks down acting in a great way. He was a great acting coach. Unfortunately, like I said, he passed away a couple of years ago, but um, I guess that would be my advice.
1: Okay. Sir, Mike, I know you've been plugging your stuff the entire time. Go for it. This is the, the time where can people find you? Where can they go to, to see your acting stuff, to see your books, the whole shebang.
0: Thanks. And it's been a lot of fun, Tony. And thanks for having me on your show. Well, I'm definitely your guy that we should meet up in person next time I go to Texas or if you come out here to Florida. Um, I so would invite people to go to Uh They can scroll to the bottom and that's where my all my six titles are listed. The fighter play basketball. We didn't even mention that, but that's my coming of age basketball boxing story. Um, and uh, that's available in novel form. and uh, Most of the movies we've talked about my feature film, blood sugar sedace, the impeccable disregard, the vampire, Mike Messier documentary. They're all available to be seen on subscribe to Mike Messier, YouTube channel. Uh, Yes, that is the name of the channel. So you you have to put the whole thing in subscribe to Mike Messier, YouTube channel to find the, the right one. So I appreciate it. And, uh, I really do appreciate everybody who's listened and, and, uh, especially you, Tony, and good luck with you and your, um, family. And, uh, Congratulations once again on having your, uh, your first, uh, born recently.
1: Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Uh, of course, make sure you all, you know, like subscribe, download, share rate, review, the whole shebang, go make sure you cop some merch. I got t-shirts, hoodies, and a phone case. I was like, maybe somebody will buy this. <laughs> I always get the case with like the little card holder on the back, but you know, you throw stuff at the wall and see if it sticks. So, um, All right, signing off. It is your host, Tony Rambles, and Sir Mike, Mike Messier, actor, producer, writer extraordinaire. We will see you all in the next round. Boom. Let me stop it here.